You're listening to sermon audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com. I want y'all to go ahead and turn with me to Exodus chapter 1 verse 8. We're going to jump around just a little bit, kind of breeze through a long story in a short time. I like those outfits. Very patriotic. Uh, so Exodus chapter 1 verse 8. I want to tell you a story that happened, um, you know, back in 1942, but the, the markings of it are found in the National Museum of American History. Around May of 2009, they showcased this particular compass, and we have a picture of it here. Um, it's only four and a half inches in diameter. looks bigger on the screen, but it's a small little compass. And it kind of stands as a lasting remnant of a story of emergency rescue. Right? This, the exhibition that displayed this compass is called On the Water, Stories of Maritime America. And back in 1942, a man by the name of Waldemar Semenov, a Russian immigrant who was serving as a junior uh, engineer on the merchant ship SS Alcoa Guide, uh, which was sailing from Jersey down the coast to the Caribbean uh, island of Guadalupe to take supplies to the West Indies. And uh, they were on their way about, uh, it was April 16th, I believe, 300 miles off the shore of Cape Hatteras, North Carolina, and a German submarine surfaced. It was the U-123, and it opened fire on, uh, it's, it's, uh, on this ship. And Semenov said, we didn't have any guns. There was no escort. We didn't have much speed, so they just used us as target practice. And the Alcoa, since it was unarmed, Samuel Cobb, the captain, tried to ram the sub and was wounded in the process. But the ship, of course, still uh, caught fire and was sinking, and the crew scrambled to lower two lifeboats and a raft into the water. But Semenov stayed calm because uh, he recalled years before, uh, in the first six months of 1942, he recalled that German U-boats had actually sank 400 ships uh, in the Atlantic. And at that time, he said he was only around four years old. He was living on the New Jersey shore with his family. And he says, I vividly recall my father waking my older brother and me in the middle of the night, wrapping us in blankets and taking us down to the beach. He pointed to the flickering lights on the horizon and he said, son, remember this. Those are the flames of ships being torpedoed by the Germans. And this wasn't Semenov's first exposure to combat either. He said, I'd, I've been in Spain during the Civil War, uh, their Civil War, not ours, it, it, in waters off of England. He, he adds, the ship next to us had been hit by German planes. So I'd seen bombing and shooting before, and I wanted to size up the situation. So what does Semenov do? Well, he rushes down below deck to his cabin, and he grabs a new suit and an overcoat. And here's the ship, I believe. Yeah, there he is. That's him and his, yeah, there's the ship. And then this next picture shows him in that suit and coat. He later actually gave that coat to someone else that rushed onto deck in their underwear. And, you know, they were going to be out at sea for a little while in these rafts. And so he tried to prepare. And before he got into the lifeboat, he grabbed three loaves of bread uh, from the galley. He said, I knew uh, we might be in the lifeboats for a while and the rations in the boats wouldn't be enough. Now, someone did have the wherewithal to put a compass, a small little compass, on each one of those lifeboats, right? And they used that compass. That compass is vital to the story because without it, they couldn't have found their way to the shipping lanes where they were spotted days later by a patrol plane and picked up by a boat. 
Now, not long after this, Semenov, they, they don't make men like they used to. He enlisted back in the army, served as an engineer on troop ships and supply ships with both the army and the navy in the Atlantic and the Pacific. And he continued to serve as a merchant seaman until 1987. Uh, it was actually years later, I think in 05, that someone came to him and approached him and said, hey, um, can we have that compass to put in our museum, right? He said, yeah course a lot of courage a lot of experience and a lot of wisdom displayed in that story the courage of the captain who later died to ram the boat and fight for their lives the experience of previous previous battles of Semenov and others and the wisdom of whoever put that compass in that lifeboat emergency rescue a great memorial day story Right, And there are several unsung family rescues strewn throughout the book of Exodus uh, that kind of set the stage today. And this story sets the stage for that in Genesis, I mean in Exodus chapter 1 verse 8. And we're going to jump around a little bit, but the scriptures will be up here on the, on, the, on the screen. Exodus 1 verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now jump to Exodus 2 verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And she saw that he was a fine child. She hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, meaning baby Moses was either too big or too loud to hide, she took him and hid him in a basket, of, uh, made a bull, basket of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And in case you needed an illustration for this, we have a wonderful picture of what this might have looked like right here. Oh, sorry, that's my grandson, Asher. <laughs> All right. I told you I was going to show you a picture. I just had to squeeze it in somewhere. All right, well, y'all get the point. All right? Uh, and as you may recall, uh, Moses' own mom ended up raising him, and, and that was the rest of the story. Jump back into Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to, to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to, to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, who we'll find out later was actually a pseudonym for Jethro, or another word for uh, same man as Jethro. He said, how is it that you've uh, come home so soon today? You know, usually they have to battle with these shepherds. He said, an, they said an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said, what are you, are you girls crazy? Why didn't you drag that guy home? That's a suitor. That's a, he'll make a good husband. Well, that's not exactly what he said. He actually said, where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. 
She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land, Moses himself. And then we have the burning bush story and where God calls Moses to rescue Egypt. Moses chickens out, he's all scared. And so God gives him all these signs and a staff and sends him on his way. Now he's ready. And so after God's huge speech to Moses, we pick back up in Exodus 4, verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they're still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and he had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I'll harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall see, say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And then this is where it gets a little trippy. All right, verse 24. Random story in a story. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him, meaning he met Moses, and sought to put him to death. And we don't know the full details of this encounter, but at some point in verse 25, then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin, meaning she circumcised him, and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he, meaning the Lord, let him alone. It was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. And then it jumps right back into the story. Crazy little caveat. All right. We're going to try to make sense of it today. But before we do that, I want to ask a friend of mine who's here today, Jeff Ginn, if he would come and ask God's blessings on the service. Jeff is, uh, works with the IMB. He's over uh, the Americas, all the work. He lives in Peru. I, I might actually get you to pray in Spanish. Okay. All right, and uh, he, he leads all the he leads all the other missionaries. So y'all can pray for him. Uh, they live. Uh, Nell has an old home place passed down through her family out on Bahalia Road, and they're back in town just for a minute. Oremos, Señor, te damos gracias por este día. Lord, we thank you for this day. Gracias por esta iglesia. Thank you, Lord, for Piperton Baptist Church. Gracias por el pastor went. Thank you, Lord, for the pastor went. Y el gran amigo que él es para mí. Thank you, Lord, for the good friend that he is to me. Ayúdale hoy, Señor, a predicar tu palabra. Help him today, Lord, to preach your word en espíritu y verdad, in spirit and in truth. Ayúdanos a nosotros, Señor. Help us who listen. A entender lo que, es, lo que está predicado. Help us to understand what's preached. Para que podamos poner en práctica. So that we can put into practice lo que aprendemos. That which we learn. En el nombre de Jesús. In the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 I mean, I got the last word. I knew that one. <laughs> Uh, Jeff and I served together for almost a decade 
uh, in Virginia at a church together. And so we've known each other for years. I, if I ever preach a good sermon, it's partially his fault. All right. Now, I've entitled if it's bad, it's not his fault. All right. I've entitled our message today emergency rescue for obvious reasons, because parents in many ways are our EMTs. We are emergency ministry technicians. All right. And there's always a challenge or an injury or a drama, uh, last minute cramming for finals or fender benders, college, depression addictions, all types of sin and rebellion, weddings, uh, career changes, moving vans, and grandkids, you know, right? The, the list goes on. And for Moses and Zipporah, I believe they were ahead of the curve of being EMTs because they had a good foundation that helped prepare them for EMT work. And this is my main point this morning. Homes are built on foundations of safety and rescue, right? So let's track this story uh, of rescue uh, because I think it, it reveals a lot about parenting. First is Moses, his immediate family, all right? And these are mostly women that are mentioned in this story. And I want to just pause here and say... Um, I don't have to wait until next year's Mother's Day sermon <laughs> to say uh, that women in the Bible, uh, godly women in the Bible and still godly women today are unbelievable in their commitment to God and, and their husbands if they have them and their families. And there's many moms that are doing that alone. And I praise God for you too, for, for getting your children here to church and for raising them in the love and admonition of the Lord. However, in most recent generations, I believe both men and women are often praised for fighting in what I believe are less than vital things. All right? You know, the women fighters of today, oh, let's just praise them for their fight, right? And it makes it sound, they make it seem, <laughs> some of these freedom fighters, as if women have never in all of world history had power or done great things besides flying a plane across the Atlantic or something like that. And I'm not dissing Amelia Earhart, but I'm saying we often today highlight women for doing a stereotypical man's job. That's like the pinnacle. You're the first woman to do that. And they call that strength. Newsflash. Men and women have had strength since long before you were ever born, all right? They've worked in multiple capacities since the beginning of time. Tough, powerful, faithful women aren't new, right? It's insulting to the generations of godly women who needed no fanfare uh, to be courageous, loving, godly wives and mothers and workers, right? And I'm only saying this contrast the fact that women in the Bible, and I believe many women still today, weren't fighting for the right and the privilege of position and prominence or to be the first woman to do something, right? They were literally risking their lives to save their families. Hardworking, risk-taking moms and dads have been around forever. Moses' safety was fought for by multiple people, and we shouldn't take, make light of that. His family took risks, not risks of less pay in the workplace, but the threat of being killed. And I'm for equal pay, equal job, but this is greater than that. And I doubt they even fully knew 
what God was going to do uh, through and empower Moses to do. But they didn't need an extra motive. Motive enough was safety and rescue of their family. So first I want to mention Jochebed. This is uh, the name of Moses' mom according to Exodus chapter 6 verse 20. Exodus one twenty two says, Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Imagine crying, drowning thousands of babies floating down a river. And there's actually a stone carving displayed in the British Museum that's believed to be the Pharaoh who made this degree. And MacArthur, I agree with him and the historians he agrees with that the Pharaoh was Tutmos the first. I think we have a picture of this uh, up here somewhere, maybe. If not, that's okay. There it is. You know, that, that could have literally been the depiction of the Pharaoh uh, that was killing all these children. And I only throw these things up there to you to say we don't need archaeology to prove that the Bible's true, but the Bible is backed up by all the sciences, right? And this is just an example of it. So Jochebed disobeyed a direct and well-known command of the king for one purpose, to save her son. And I just want to stop here and just ask you parents, what are you willing to do? Are you willing to get up and drive across town to pick your child up from a friend's house where they spent the night so you can get them here on time for Sunday morning church? Are you prepared to limit their screen time, right, even if it means a little extra work for you, right? Are you willing to drive back from the lake to teach kids about Jesus, right? You're willing to miss a, a ball game to go on a much needed family vacation. Y'all willing to do that? And I only say these particular things because I actually know people in this church that have done that, that have driven back from the lake to teach a Sunday school class, even though their families were down at Pickwick. And I know families that have gone and picked their kids up to get them to church. And I know people like this. And I praise God for the moms and dads that come to the rescue no matter the cost. Jochebed's effort didn't go unnoticed. We're talking about it 3,500 years later. We're talking about Jochebed. This story that she didn't even need praise for. She didn't post it on Instagram. Here we are praising her. Next we have Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, the ancient historian Josephus says her name was Thermotus. This was the Greek name of the Egyptian snake deity. And this may have been another name for her. I tend to favor 1 Chronicles 4.17, which says there are, these are the sons of Bithia, the daughter of Pharaoh. But we'll just call her Pharaoh's daughter. One scholar said she came from a savage and heartless royal family capable of an edict of genocide, of commanding that babies should be thrown into the river. And yet she was a girl with a tender maternal heart. I mentioned this a few weeks back about being fearful of women who have no inkling of a desire to be mothers. Uh, but if women raised in idol worship with pagan fathers still have compassionate maternal instincts, how much more so should Christ following mothers? And I praise God for the Christ following mothers we have in this church and even teenagers that I know I see they always have a, someone else's baby, Baylor, who I baptized this morning. You just never see her without Joseph in her arms hardly. Um, 
one day they'll start paying you to keep that child up for, for date night, all right? And listen, don't think for a minute that kings didn't kill their daughters in that day. She was breaking her father and her Pharaoh's direct command. When I lived in India, well, my wife and I and our family served over there for uh, about a decade. And while we were there, the woman who taught us Hindi, the national language of India, uh, her name was Lata Gulani. Lata uh, was Punjabi and her father was a devout uh, uh, worshipped idols and they would put the pictures of these idols all around their, their living room like, and then they would pray to them they would stand in front of these idols and pray to them well Lata's uh, sister uh, who went on uh, who was the first to get saved in their family trust in Christ and began, she began telling her matter of fact she, my, by the, the church I went to to worship uh, she was the pastor's wife Lata's sister and um, she shared uh, with Lata about Christ and Lata began to trust in Jesus and she would but the daily ritual was to stand in front of these idols and pray so dad was there making sure the the family did all their idol worship right so she goes she, and she told me this herself she said I, I would stand in front of that idol and I could not speak the name of that idol I, it couldn't I couldn't say it I couldn't physically make myself say it all I could say was the name of Jesus so I began to worship only Jesus. And she said like the next morning, that idol fell off the wall randomly and broke on the ground. You know, Dagog in the, uh, in the Bible, that, that one that fell over and broke, broke his hands off. And she said, then I began to pray, God destroy all these idols. And she said they, the one by one, she would wake up and these idols would have fallen off the wall onto the ground. And I was like, you sure you didn't take some of those off the wall? You know, she's like, no, they were falling off. So she would just sweep up the glass, throw it away and put the idol thing behind the bed. She'd hide it. <laughs> and they were down to one. And so she said, you know what? I was cleaning the room one day. She said, I just took it down. And I put it so there were no more. And her dad, I guess it's, you know, didn't contest it because he had seen it. Defying commands for God's glory. That's what these women did. Next, we have Moses' sister, who was likely Miriam. Miriam showed incredible parental protection. She had the care to watch her little brother at a distance to assure his safety. She had the cleverness to suggest a Hebrew nurse for the child, which we know ended up being her own mother, Jochebed, uh, Moses' own mother, and Miriam's. And then she had the courage to approach as a servant girl, a servant Hebrew, a slave of Egypt. She approached the Pharaoh's daughter, a member of the royal house of Egypt, which took a lot of courage. Three women cared for the safety and rescue of baby Moses. And to explain the magnitude of the situation they were in, I want to jump to a timeline I've used before. And this is only to illustrate the fact that a lot of times we think of these genocides and in the New Testament where they killed all the babies as these little one day, one week stints. You know, like they were just, it just happened for a little while. No, uh, in uh, 1800 BC, remember we've got Jacob's family in Egypt, you know, Joseph in the coat of many colors. God let him have these visions uh, or interpret the dreams of, of the Pharaoh. And long story short, he saved them and Israel from drought and starvation. And then a hundred years later, all the Israelites just kept on multiplying despite all the persecution. And in 1600 BC, you know, we're coming backwards through time, uh, that oppression increased to the point uh, where, you know, they got a new king. And in 1539, it's uh, BC, Pharaoh orders all the firstborn children uh, to be killed. 
But it wasn't until 15 years later in 1525 BC that we have the birth and adoption of Moses, right? So these women knew persecution. They had known it for over a decade. This wasn't one, a one week event, right? This wasn't four years and a new president. This was one man saying whatever he wanted and it happening. Remember back in Exodus 115, that was where the king of Egypt told the Hebrew midwives to kill the boys. But in verse 17, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, right? It was the same way with Jochebed, same way with Bithia, Pharaoh's daughter, and same way with Miriam. They knew and they intentionally went against that order to save and rescue. And I think that fight for life, listen, this is important. That foundation of protection and safety and rescue of the weak was passed down to Moses. Surely Moses looked back on the, his life and knew the stories of his own life and rescue and became a protector himself. And he's the next one I want to mention, Moses. Three times in this story, manly Moses showed signs of emergency rescue. Let me just pause here and say, I know some think that in this modern era that gender roles seem a little confusing. Friend, the Bible says Satan's the author of confusion. And there's nothing confusing about a biological man or woman. Some women love to cut grass and some men love to cook. Who cares? Right? Who cares about the roles like that, the task of a home? Some want to do dishes sometimes. That's not what we're talking about, all right? When, I, when I'm talking about, those are personal preference, preferences, you know. What I do take issue with is the wimpy, pansy behavior of Christian men who refuse to lead their homes with humility and spiritual protection and service. Both men and women can still be fearless within their roles as a man or a woman, as a mom or a dad. But a man with a passive personality doesn't get off the hook of spiritual leadership, right? And an extroverted, outgoing woman doesn't get to usurp the leadership of her husband unless it means he's neglecting God's word and she's saving a life like Zipporah is going to do in a minute, right? Moses had three rescues. His first rescue was in Exodus 2.11 when he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. His second rescue was in Exodus 2.16 uh, with Jethro, the, the priest of Midian's seven daughters, brought their dad's flock to the well to get some uh, water and men tried to run them off. And Moses, it says in verse 17, Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. He went above and beyond. He just, didn't just stood up and save them and say, come on, get your water. He even served them. And of course, we believe Zipporah. I believe she took a fancy to him personally. Uh, and in my sanctified imagination I think he she we know she was one of the women at the at the well uh, and you may think the third rescue was Egypt uh, rescuing the children of Israel from Egypt but it was actually in Exodus 18 verse 2 now Jethro Moses's father-in-law had taken Zipporah Moses's wife after he had sent her home along with her two sons so we know that before all that went down in Egypt all those problems with Pharaoh, the 10 plagues, Moses had sent his family home most likely to keep them protected from harm, right? So Moses protected. He had a life of protection shown to him and he was displaying that in his own life. And the last parent I'm gonna mention this morning is one of the seven sisters Moses rescued, Zipporah herself, right? Right in the middle of this uh, story, there's a story within a story. 
It's just random. And of all the rescues in this story, this one's probably the most important, right? Exodus 4.24, at a lodging place, this seems so crazy, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him, right? God met Moses and sought to put him to death. I don't know how he revealed this wrath. I don't know how he, if he spoke it, if he says it, we don't know. But somewhere along the way, Zipporah took a flint, light, a flint and cut off her son's foreskin. She, what, he wasn't a little baby anymore. And touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. And there's some background to that historically, but I don't want to get into that right now. So he, meaning the Lord, let Moses alone, let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. And the truth is, it's hard to know. Was, was Zipporah being like disrespectful to her wife, to, to her husband? You're know, like, hey... You know, you should have done this already. Was she, was she, you know, we kind of get that. It feels that way, but we really don't know. I've heard arguments both ways. What we do know are three things that all scholars agree on, uh, conservative scholars, about this passage. And that says, number one, God was going to kill Moses. The guy he was going to use to rescue Egypt wasn't more important than the law of God, which is the second part. He was going to kill him because Moses' son was not circumcised. And number three, Zipporah's actions pleased God to relent from his intent. That's what happened, right? We know that uncircumcised, uncircumcised males were cut off from the blessings of the covenant. Circumcision basically separated those who believed in God's promises uh, to Abraham from those who didn't, right? Now we already know that if uh, it took faith, even in the Old Testament, didn't take circumcision to save you, it took faith. Now Genesis 15, 6 explains that Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And that's quoted again in Romans 4, verse 3. But the circumcision was more than just a cutting of a baby's foreskin. It represented more than that. Right, which many believe in that day, I know it, it did have medical benefits of preventing infection and things like that. But it was more than medical and it was more than some legalistic salvation by works. Jeremiah 4.4 in the Old Testament says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Galatians 5, 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Paul says in Romans 2, 29, circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 19, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So why was God about to kill Moses? I believe it was because Moses hadn't taken to heart the seriousness, the magnifold seriousness of God's commands. Circumcision was a cutting away of the flesh to demonstrate a heart fully devoted to God. Moses wasn't devoted to God enough to obey one simple command. And his wife had to step in and save his life. Genesis 17, 14 says, any uncircumcised male who's not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So what does the poor do? She steps in and rescue. And by the way, 
Zipporah wasn't saving her own life. This would have been a great time to off your husband, right? So you can laugh. That was a joke, unless y'all are really serious about it. Now you're, you're not laughing makes me a little scared. Huh. <laughs> Dear Lord. No, I'm just kidding. It wasn't her who was under threat. It wasn't her child who was under threat. It was Moses who was under threat. And she stepped in. I, I wonder if she ever let him live that down, right? Just like Adam and Eve, right? It wasn't, even though Eve ate, ate of the forbidden fruit first, it was Adam's sin. It was the man, Moses, who God holds responsible for the primary training and conduct of the children. And I know there's single moms in this room, lots of you, and you have to wear both hats sometimes. And praise God for you for doing that. But it's not God's intent, his desires for the fathers to be those leaders. And it's, listen, it's a warning to all Christian dads today. <laughs> Even if you're, you have a spouse who resists your godly discipline in the home and they disagree with your commitment to God's word, just because of their rebellion doesn't absolve us from our responsibilities as Christian fathers uh, to obey God's word in our home. Amen? Can I get a little bit bigger amen from them, you fathers? <laughs> Men are like, well, I guess I'll start, right? The commands of God still matter. Yes, the grace of God is there to help us be sanctified and obey those commands. Praise God, hallelujah. But don't make light of God's grace by assuming you can parent however you please and never reap the wrath of God. Fight for the lives of your families. Fight in prayer, fight in grace, fight in love. Fight with the discipline like you've done this morning to get up and make it to church for them to hear Bible studies taught by other people other than you, to be involved in the gathering of God's people as a family priority, fight to keep God's word a power source in your home. And you'll reap the benefit of it, friend. To everyone here today, let me just say this, not just parents. Someone's got to pay for your sin. Well, we just watched the other night uh, National Treasure what did he say? You remember what he said? Someone's got to go to jail. Isaiah remembers that quote. It's at the end of the movie and, you know, they've caught them and, you know, there are all these little secret masons or whatever, you know, the movie. He says, someone's got to go to jail. Hey, listen, it may be a joke in that movie, but it's for real. Someone's got to go. Someone's got to pay for your sin. You got two options. There's only two options. You're either going to pay. And by the way, y'all ever wonder why hell is eternal? Why don't people just die and that's the end of it? Suffer maybe an, a, a year or two? Why is hell forever? Because remember the Old Testament, they had to keep offering sacrifices for sins, but the sacrifices were never good enough. So they had to keep doing it. You're not good enough to pay for your own sins. You're gonna burn forever. But there's another option on the table. Option, I pick door number two, and that's the option to put your faith fully in Jesus Christ to forgive your sins just like Jackson and Baylor have done. I tell people all the time, I will never, by the grace of God, pay in eternity for one single sin. Not one. I'll have consequences of my sins on this earth, right? We feel that. We feel the pain of our own sin. But I'm not going to pay for any in eternity because the blood of Jesus has washed over this sinful wretch 
and many of you as well, and you can call on him today to do that. Maybe you can start being that father and mother even better than you are now. Won't we stand? Father God, we love you. We worship you. And we've got some glowing examples in Scripture of people who fought for the safety and the rescue of their families. And we're tired of being a little too lazy with that particular task. God, I know it's Memorial Day weekend. It really is, uh, of all things, it's the, day, it's the weekend to be lazy. But God, we can't ever as parents let our put, take our foot off the gas. We've got to rescue we fathers, we have to step in. We men need to step up and step in and be the spiritual leaders we need to be. Not to control our wives by force, but to control them by service. Let to, to let them see us serving them. Let that be the example. Serving our children. Getting them to church. Making God's word a priority in our home. Making church a priority in our lives and our schedules. I praise God for those who have done that today. Pray there would be a joy that comes from it, not a prideful joy that, uh, that we're self-righteous, but a joy that comes from the, the peace of following and obeying God's commands. We know it's grace that saves us, but we need to be sanctified and obey His Word. I pray you'd help us today to be the parents we need to be to rescue these children. I pray for our nation as we try to reverse Roe versus Wade and even as our churches were taking up money from, from now to Father's Day, these, these bottles out in the foyer to fill them with change, to, to help prevent mothers from getting abortions and to counsel the, the mothers that have gotten abortions, that there's life after that. And for those many kids to, to, to put them up for adoption and to adopt some of these children that are available in Memphis to, to adopt and bring into a Christian home. Lord, we want to take action for you today. We don't want to just hear a sermon and walk out and say, I was a good one, preacher. We want to, we want to obey you. So help us today. I pray if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, they'd call on the name of Jesus. It's not complicated. It's just full surrender to you. Call on him and he'll save you. Bible says if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart God raised him from the dead we'll be saved and I pray if there's others here that want to make Piperton a more permanent part of their service to you they want to be part of this family and serve you in a real way that they'll come and be members here we ask it in Jesus name Amen This has been sermon audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee for more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com.